Coming up in this episode. Yeah, I think the take home is for, you know, for, for the listeners would be, just, you know, you have to follow your passion. This is a passion for me. I've never thought of it. Okay, this could be a career path for me. I just enjoy doing it. It's a purpose because it makes me feel good. I retain much more content because I'm active. I failed in school. I sucked at school. I hated school. I'm not saying that you shouldn't go to school, uh, but I, I sucked at it. And because I wasn't able to retain the content because I wasn't interested in it. As soon as I found my passion, and then combined that with eating better and being active, which provided more nutrient-rich blood and oxygen to my brain. And it was like my double-A batteries in the morning. All of a sudden, I started reading content, reading books. And I thought, wow, this is something that I can actually retain, remember, and apply. I'm going to go continue down this path and just see where it leads from day to day. Welcome to the HVMN Podcast. What we do with our bodies today becomes the foundation of who we are tomorrow. This is Health via Modern Nutrition. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the HVMN Podcast. I hope you all are staying safe and healthy. Uh, you know, we're currently in the San Francisco HQ in the podcast studio, but relatively socially isolated. So feel very safe and sound here and we're fortunate to be able to say that. Uh, but anyways, on to exciting, positive things. I'm really excited to welcome Chris Gethin on the HVMN podcast today. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much, sir. I really appreciate it. How are you doing? How are you holding up? Uh, well, I'm kind of a hermit anyway. I, uh, I like social isolation. So uh, times haven't changed that much for me, except I'm more busier than ever because uh, obviously a lot of my clients can't train at the gym. So uh, I'm creating a lot of uh, in-home workout plans and navigating their new nutritional protocol to uh, accommodate. So I I'm busy. I I'm busier than ever. You know, I still have mountains at the back of my house and plenty of mountain bike trails. So I'm, I'm good to go. That's good to hear. I think, again, I think both you and I are fortunate to be in a position where we can still stay active, be productive, um, and hopefully help people. And I think, obviously, the, the, the work you're doing, coaching and on the nutrition exercise perspective is very helpful, but also conversation like these to keep people stimulated, put out useful information. Uh, hopefully that's valuable to folks over the next coming weeks and potentially months here. Yeah, for sure. Like this is the opportunity now to double down, to listen to podcasts like this, to educate yourself and, you know, come out a much stronger person. And when we went in, you know, a lot of winners come out after adversity and challenges stronger people so we just got to look at this as a as a opportunity to grow and turn those uh one once weaknesses into weapons yeah absolutely so for folks who don't know chris you have a very varied background from being a physical transformation specialist to creating your own training methods to being a spokesmodel spokesperson for top bodybuilding sites before all of that, what was young Chris like? How did you get into this space? What was your initial spark that brought you uh, down this path? 
Uh, well, I'm from Wales originally. I left Wales in the 90s, uh, but I spent a lot of my childhood uh, grown up on a farm and then racing motocross for about 15 years. And, uh, it, it, you know, I think that's probably why I got into things such as like bodybuilding and various individualized sports. I've never never been a team player uh, in the sporting culture. And I think uh, that, you know, partly grown up on a farm and uh, keeping myself entertained through adventure and through sports kind of led that path. And, um, you know, I raced motocross, like I said, for about 15 years, and I just suffered some injuries during that course, uh, that period. And one of them was a major back injury. And uh, it wasn't until I actually stumbled across weight training through my physiotherapist uh, and that resistance training alleviating me of the pain and then kind of the depression that was associated with it because I wasn't getting my uh, my fix of adrenaline anywhere else. And I found weight training to be extremely therapeutic. And that's when I decided, you know what, I'm going to study this and this will probably give me a ticket out of Wales. I appreciate Wales now many years later, but at that time I just wanted out. You know, I was in a social circumstance where there was a lot of partying going on, a lot of alcohol, a lot of drugs, because like I said, there was no adrenaline that I could get it from elsewhere. And that's when I stumbled across rate training and uh, felt that that was my path, not only for myself and purpose, but you know, then later to help other people. How old were you at the time? Well, I was about 23 when I gave up motocross and I would have been about 24, 25 when I got into the weight training. And what immediately drew you to weight training was it that just endorphin rush as you're just lifting heavy was it seeing like quick newbie gains for folks that you know weren't weight training you oftentimes see rapid growth and lean muscle tissue what was that initial spark for you it was several things i'd say first number one it would have been the alleviation of the pain that i had in the back from my injuries because I'd gone to massage therapists, to osteopaths, and it wasn't until I started resistance training that I was alleviated of that pain, which kind of got me over the depression. Then uh, the addictiveness I, I got from, like you said, was those newbie gains. I've always been kind of goal-driven where I have to have a sense of urgency. So I decided, you know what, I'm going to sign up for a bodybuilding show. And I gave myself a year to get ready for that bodybuilding show, even though I really knew nothing about bodybuilding, to be honest with you. I'd, I'd read a lot <laughs> of magazines. I, and funnily enough, I picked up a lot of magazines, like Flex magazines, before I even started lifting weights. I just liked reading and seeing these uh, comic book characters uh you know those were like my comic books when i was younger and uh, it just so happened that i actually got into it and influenced it by it and then had that sense of urgency to compete on a bodybuilding stage even though i didn't like uh standing on a stage or dieting down as much or tanning i just liked the process because it held me accountable because i knew that life could have potentially been a white knuckle a white knuckle ride without it so i really enjoyed that aspect and it just kept me militant with a schedule with discipline to stay the course that tends to be one of the models that has worked for myself and i know a lot of our listeners make those micro goals maybe medium term goals and just move something towards that whether and, and ideally something that's quantitative so you can actually have traction to hit those goals so yeah i'm curious to hear about the initial training uh, and how that's evolved. I know that you've also developed some of your own training methods. So I imagine that you're initially put on to start kind of the standard lifts, the squat, the lift bench press. Um, obviously, I imagine as you're 
doing more and more body building type competitions, doing a lot more isolation exercises. Curious to hear about your evolution on the training front. And I also imagine that from bodybuilding perspective, nutrition, diet is probably the second half of the sport, right? I mean, it's just as important to get the right diet. Curious to hear about your journey on the nutrition side. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, you've got it right with the weight training. It was the standardized compound movements with your typical six to 12 repetitions to begin with. Anything that I was able to consume from a publication, because obviously there wasn't the internet around then, and there wasn't anybody within my vicinity on a farm, that's for sure, that I could gain education from. So I had to just self-seek and experiment on a lot of these things. And, uh, you know, luckily on the farm, I was able to have access to a lot of chicken, a lot of lamb. Uh, so my protein was covered. Uh, you know, my fish would be forms of tuna, you know, choked down with uh, water and dry potatoes. And uh, I wasn't really looking so much at the sources of those foods, i.e. like organic, humane raised or anything like that. I just naturally had a lot of those foods available to me whilst on the farm. But, uh, you know, the, the training was your typical five days a week, uh, you know, because the gym uh, where I lived was closed on weekends. We only had like a, a school gym uh, that I'd go into or a college gym. So I just trained Monday through uh, Friday, and the gym was usually closed at the time that I wanted to go train uh, before work. So I found a way of actually breaking into this college gym, and I'd just keep the lights off and just train in there with the lights off a lot of the time just so I could get away with getting my workouts in before getting picked up to go then work uh, you know, w- with my typical daily job, whatever that happened to be at the time. And uh, then with the nutrition, I was following like your typical five or six meals per day because I was trying to put on as much weight as I possibly could because I was very skinny. However, I really invested in supplementation during that time, you know, because I got bought by the advertisements in the magazine next to a huge bodybuilder and thought, okay, so if I take that supplement, I get these results. And I remember purchasing about 800 pounds worth uh, that the UK pounds of Medrex supplements and I'm showing up and putting them all into uh, the porch of uh, my parents' house because I was living with my parents at that time and my father just going absolutely nuts because he thought this is a complete waste of money. But I honestly thought that my success laid in those boxes and tubs and uh, yeah, lo and behold, they probably didn't really do anything to me at that time. I didn't have enough education to put them to good use. However, you know, I started learning more and applying more, but there was just a lot of mistakes in the beginning. For my first bodybuilding show, I just went zero carbohydrates for eight weeks. And I remember, you know, having (laughs) visual hallucinations at some stages, you know, putting like the coffee jar in the fridge and driving past my turning to my house on the way home. And I, I vividly remember going to an ATM getting money out of the ATM and thanking the ATM, you know, when it gave me the money, I was just off my head, you know. Um, So when I competed in that first show, I was by far the smallest because I had no idea there was such a thing as drug tested and non-drug tested shows at that time. So I was by far the smallest, but I got in very, very good shape and uh, got second in that show because I was just so peeled. Uh, and, And thankfully, 
ate some fats after that and got my cognitive function back and thought, okay, there must be an easier way of uh, doing a diet and just kind of continue to educate myself to evolve uh, next time I got onto the bodybuilding stage, which was a few years after that. Fascinating. So for your first workup, it was eight weeks, zero carbohydrate, very, very high protein and what minimal fat or something like you had moderate muscle naturally fat? Occur- naturally occurring fats. That's about it. Okay. So that was essentially like a hard, deep dive into being heavily trying to get your fat metabolism going. And even sounds like it wasn't even additional fat. So you might not get, be getting that much fatty acid metabolism going either. So you're just kind of desperate for energy substrate, which probably resulted in having some of the mental lapses there, which is, uh, I think, somewhat expected when folks go into keto adaptation for the first time, but probably not to the extent that you went through. No, not at all. Because I've gone keto, I was keto last year for uh, eight months. You know, I'll do cyclical keto. I'm actually carnivore at the moment. But these diets are a walk in a park uh, compared to what I was doing because I was probably eating mostly chicken and fish, uh, a little bit of lamb, not much, because I'm in a dieting phase. So I'm just thinking the leaner and less fat that I can consume, uh, the the leaner I'll be. But you know, it, it just it took a strain on me uh, mentally for sure. It was just my willpower that got me over the line. Yeah, but it sounds like at least on the body composition perspective, it definitely helped you get at least toned for the specific competition. So it sounded like you did quite well for your first show at the rodeo. Yeah, yeah, I was very happy. You know, I, I I was so nervous. I remember being so nervous on stage and thinking, what have I got myself into? I remember being backstage and thinking, oh, my God, these people are monsters. And I thought I looked great because there's nobody that I could compare myself to. So I thought, yeah, I'm, I'm on point here. Then I show up and, uh, you know, the nerves set in, which probably didn't do good for uh, fluid retention. Uh, but it, by any means, I think, you know, it's just the sacrifices that I made in that let you know eight week lead up even though they weren't the right sacrifices led to my success in the end so was that the moment where you realized hey i have a bit of talent here i could make this a professional career was that the seminal point or was it earlier as you just fell in love with the space the the, the programming the nutrition and all of that or was, you know, it, or was it afterwards no i i've I, i've i've never had that to be honest with you i li- i live each day as if it's, you know, whatever I do today dictates tomorrow. I don't think that far ahead. And I, I never thought this is going to be a career. My, I thought when I was in Australia, and this is going forward a few years now, uh, I think it was probably a, around like 2003, 2005, uh, I thought maybe I could make a career. But it was never as a bodybuilder. It was more so as a writer, as a photographer within in, in the industry, being behind the camera, never in front of it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's always interesting to see whether it's an happy accident, which sounds like is more your trajectory, your journey versus the five-year, 10-year plans. And I think it's always interesting to hear that trajectory, that journey for, for our guests. Because I think part of, you know, why we do this is to inspire people on what paths they could take. And then too, also in terms of being curious, taking advantage of opportunities. Sounds like you were very much able to do that. 
Yeah, I think the take home is for, you know, for, for the listeners would be, just, you know, you have to follow your passion. This is a passion for me. I've never thought of it. Okay, this could be a career path for me. I just enjoy doing it. It's a purpose because it makes me feel good. I retain much more content because I'm active. I failed in school. I sucked at school. I hated school. I'm not saying that you shouldn't go to school, uh, but I, I sucked at it. And because I wasn't able to retain the content because I wasn't interested in it. As soon as I found my passion, and then combined that with eating better and being active, which provided more nutrient-rich blood and oxygen to my brain. And it was like my AA batteries in the morning. All of a sudden, I started reading content, reading books. And I thought, wow, this is something that I can actually retain, remember, and apply. I'm going to go continue down this path and just see where it leads from day to day and allow it to dictate uh, you know, the meandering future, as it were. And, uh, you know, I've never felt that I could be somebody that would excel in one thing. So I just like to dip my finger in a few things that's all associated with each other. And hopefully they can complement each other. And, uh, you know, then collectively I could excel. 100%. So I'd love to cover your trajectory as you evolved your protocols, your best practices over, over time. So there's probably two interesting aspects here. One, the actual exercises types of resistance training that you do, and then two, how your nutrition evolved. It sounds like you've been experimenting with keto, and I'd love to talk about carnivore. Um, so I'd love to start off with the resistance training. How has your training protocol evolved over time? Are there things that you are relatively iconoclastic or you think that the standard best practices are getting wrong? What are kind of the variants and differences that you see in the space today? Yeah, I definitely think for longevity as a bodybuilder, a lot of the practices are wrong. You know, if you look at a lot of strength trained athletes or power athletes, uh, they only have so many clicks of that pen before they start succumbing to a lot of injuries. And it kind of provides powerless, a palace for, for the rest of their life. You know, they have a very short career, and most of them do, a very short uh, time span within that a given sport and you see that in a lot in in bodybuilders however i think the, the the change that they need to make is continue to cycle through various training protocols if you're going to do six to eight reps or six to 12 repetitions that's fine but maybe only do it for four weeks and then change it to a higher rep period and maybe change that to an in-between rep period you know so you are giving your tendons your ligaments your joints that of, you know connective tissue your structure some type of balance and allowance to allow it to recover because it just cannot take that punishment year after year. If you look at like a six times Mr. Olympia, Dorian Yates, who's a good friend of mine, and uh, I have a lot of respect for him, uh, and he had textbook form with his style of training. It wasn't sloppy. It didn't have any momentum. It was perfect form. However, he suffered torn tricep, bicep, uh, rotator cuffs, you know, various injuries because of that heavy-duty style of training. And I found just by accident from doing that type of training that I had to alleviate myself of training very high, heavy duty all the time because I have a small structure and I was succumbing to a lot of inflammation in my joints as well. So I started implementing higher rep ranges, you know, like 50 reps, 60 reps, but to absolute failure because it allowed me to train through or around a lot of that inflammation, but I could still get the therapeutic value from the workouts that, that I craved. 
Uh, but in doing so, I found that now my body was starting to take on a different shape. There was more separation from one muscle group to the next. There was more fullness to that muscle belly. And I, I've never really had that much fullness to my uh, muscle groups. So that's when I thought, okay, well, I'm going to try combining the both. As I feel better, I'll go a little bit heavier, but I'll still go back to the higher reps so I could target both mis both my fast twitch and slow twitch muscle fibers and burning through a lot of calories during a workout and I was you know tapping into my myofibula hypotrophy what's called my sarcoplasmic hypotrophy that you can target through various intensities and different rep ranges so as that evolved over time I started combining a lot more volume uh, so a lot more repetitions and a lot less rest periods uh, or lessening the rest periods between sets. And uh, I just found that all of a sudden I wasn't having the issues, the niggling issues, the inflammation. However, at the same time, I was getting more bang for my buck in the gym. I was getting better development, but it was time efficient. And being somebody who travels a lot, training in hotel gyms, sometimes there's very minimal equipment available. So this training protocol developed into something called DTP, Dramatic Transformation Principle, that I was able to uh, apply to a lot of my clients as well with um, a, a lot of great success. So I started publishing content about it, I wrote a book about it, published a video series about it, and it kind of just escalated from there. And I'm not saying my program is the be-all and end-all, but implement it, you know, maybe follow it for four weeks and then go back to your normal structural program for four weeks and it'll just give uh, athletes and bodybuilders uh, just more longevity in uh, what they're following. And then when it comes to the nutritional protocol, yeah, I was following the standardized, uh, you know, five, six meals, protein shakes in there, which I still do to a certain degree. But again, I cycle that. I guess, you know, for one or two months a year, I'll go plant-based. Uh, like, la like I said, last year, I went cyclical keto. And uh, for eight, yeah, for 17, 18 years, I didn't miss a single meal, not one meal. And I was very proud of that. And uh, it wasn't until I went for a colonoscopy, I had to fast before that colonoscopy. So I thought, well, I wanted to experiment with this uh, anyway. So let me try intermittent fasting. So I actually liked the aspect of that as well. So I started combining that with a cyclical keto diet. And as I mentioned, you know, I'm, I'm currently like six days into experimenting with a carnivore. So I like to do a lot of these things and just see how it affects my body. I'll wear a 24-hour blood glucose monitor. I quantify my heart rate variability. So I want to see how it affects me. And then I'll, you know, every three to six months, I'll do blood blood testing, hair follicle testing for heavy metal contaminants. And whatever I utilize on myself, I then pass on to my clients uh, to see how it could possibly uh, work with them in a positive way. Absolutely. I want to just reflect on the physical training side. The literature around volume, higher volume to lighter weight versus high weight, lower reps seems to actually pan out in literature in terms of overall strength gain. So I think it, it I think so it sounds like from your experience seems to also just match what the literature suggests in terms of strength gains and lean muscle tissue growth. And I think one of the things that a lot of elite athletes that we work with or have been on the program is injury prevention. I mean, what is your sense of that? I feel like a bunch of young men and boys and girls, the first thing when they do, they just want to go super, super hard. 
I'm not necessarily super old, but I think I've just come to appreciate the fact that just not getting injured is probably worth 75% of it. If you just can be consistent and be able to actually make incremental gains and compound over time, that tends to be much, much better, much, much more efficient than having three weeks of inspiration, getting a PR and then breaking <laughs> your back or, or whatnot, and then having to pause for two months. Um, curious to see whether you have reflections or anecdotes from your personal career or on the tour competing with world-class bodybuilders or with your clients. How does that thinking framework mesh with your observations, your experience? Yeah, it definitely makes sense. You know, if you look at a lot of uh, higher volume trainers in the bodybuilding world, whether it be like a Branch Warren or Flex Lewis or, um, you know, like a Ronnie Coleman, there's a lot of volume there, but sometimes combined with strength, power moves as well. I just think it's uh, the, the way that you move the weight dependence on that particular muscle group so for instance if you think about the chest or the triceps more designed for punching more of an explosive manner so then you'll combine uh the you know the heavier weight with an explosive concentric but with a controlled uh, eccentric uh, i think that's just as important uh, with the combination of the higher and lower rep principle if you're going higher reps of course you can go get away with going a little bit faster with those repetitions because there's less stress placed on your tendons your ligaments you can do it you can get away and you're trying to you know, get the pump promote that sarcoplasmic hypotrophy but it's the combination of both that is key uh there's an athlete here in boise he's uh classed as the strongest pound for pound power lifter in the world jesse norris and if you look at him like he, he'll do 10 reps minimum very minimum and he'll do some form of cardio every day as well, which kind of throws people off. And, uh, you know, he's very lean, has his abs all year round, and he just throws away the aspect that people think powerlifters should hold more body fat, should just do lower reps. Uh, but, you know, his periodization probably ends at, uh, at, at a many more repetitions that most people would, would uh, expect. And uh, just from my observation, I just see more and more people getting into it because, as you so rightfully mentioned, that it's the longevity that counts. You know, I'm 45 years old now, but I know that I can destroy a lot of people in their 30s that are injured, obviously. You know, it doesn't matter what age you are. What matters is that you're able to stay consistent and persistent and recognize, okay, especially in this day and age when we have uh, Instagram and we want those instant results and we see people like Bradley Martin just pull in a huge amount of weight, we can't all be like that. And he probably made a lot of sacrifices before we see his success. However, a lot of kids today just want the success before having the patience and a long-term sacrifice. And especially guys, you know, we train with ego. You know, you don't hear of many females tearing pecs on a bench press, but you hear about guys doing it because they train with an ego. So I think it's just very important that we teach the younger generation uh, that, you know, it's the longevity, it's the health span within the sport that is going to give you your success. Because if you look at someone like Dexter Jackson, who just got second at the Arnold Classic, he's 50 years old. He could have taken that first place. And if you look at his training style, it's very smart. It's the, it, you know, sometimes it is to failure, sometimes it isn't. But there's more volume in there, and he just recognizes that. It's the long-term gain. There's probably people out there that train 10 times harder than him, but those people now are retired. Absolutely. And I feel like this is going to be something that just happens every single generation. 
I, I mean, I think if you told me to do that when I was like 18, 19, I think I would be hard for me to listen. I'm I, I imagine that when you were a young buck, you just wanted to just throw up, you know, you're probably a little bit more reckless and aggressive than you are at this point. And I think hopefully you can learn that mistake earlier, sooner, and where the injury is not too bad, where you can actually then seriously implement it. Because I think there is some actual visceral learning that one must experience. Yeah, I don't know if you yeah. have that kind of story for yourself, but I just know for myself, it, it, there's been a couple of times where I'm just, you know, a little bit heavy on the squat, tweak the back a little bit. And like, And you do that a couple of times, you're like, okay, I got to really, really be thoughtful around form, technique, don't live with ego. Um, did you have a personal experience there where it's like, okay, I, you know, the, the experienced mature folks have been telling me this. I never listened. Uh, now I have battle scars to show for that. Or were you wise beyond your years earlier in your, in, in your career? Definitely not wise. No, not at all. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I've uh, succumbed to various injuries, which helps me speak to people uh, that are younger than me, uh, so they don't experience the same difficulties. You know, luckily, I've been able to train around all of them and heal them. You know, I do biohack my health. I, I'll fly to Columbia and have stem cells put in, you know, so I feel phenomenal now, but not everybody has that access. And obviously, with fasting, cold thermogenesis, infrared sauna every day, I do everything to biohack my, my health and my future, but I understand can't all do that. So it's better to use a preventative measure than a cure. So I've torn my hamstring, but that was snowboarding. Um, I've torn my uh, pec as well. That was downhill mountain biking, separated both my AC joints, but that was downhill mountain biking. Surfing, I've had injuries. Motocross, obviously. Uh, but it was, uh, I had two injuries in the gym. Uh, one was on a reverse grip pull down in the very first week of the filming of my four weeks to shred video trainer. Uh, that you could find online and that was on a reverse grip hammer pull down but that's going very strict however i was just going a little too heavy you know i found with a little bit more fluidity to my style of training i don't get injured i'm a little bit better that way and the other injury that i got uh, several years ago was training with branch warren we were uh, being filmed for gasp and of course i don't want to let this guy train any heavier than me i'm gonna <laughs> i'm gonna go in i don't care how big you are i'm gonna destroy you you know especially when the cameras are rolling and i didn't feel anything as uh, much during that filming because the adrenaline was pumping. Uh, but after I thought, I think I've done something to my shoulder. And yeah, I got it uh, scanned later, about six months later, because I was getting ready for an Ironman at the time. So I needed to continue going. Uh, but after the Ironman, uh, yeah, I torn my labrum, my rotator cuff. I had to have my uh, clavicle shaved. And, uh, you know, that's a, that's a price that I paid. Yikes. You're a tough, you're a tough guy. I mean, you, you did an Ironman with a torn shoulder. <laughs> yeah, it was diff it was difficult because I couldn't swim in a straight line. So even though I thought I was swimming in a straight line, whenever I would uh, what's called sighting, you know, you'd come up like every six strokes to see where you are, and I'm going in a completely different direction. That's Jeez. when I knew I had problems. Yeah. Uh, but you know, I, I just worked around it. You know, I wasn't training hard or heavy. It was just the swimming that was uh, the pain in the butt during that process. But I managed to navigate through it, and uh, I think it worked out to be quite good rehab actually um but anyway i had that fixed and then i got myself ready for another iron man four months after the surgery you know to give myself uh, uh another form of accountability to get better quick 
Yeah, that's a testament to the varied types of physical bouts you're challenging your body and mind with going from powerlifting and bodybuilding to basically the ultimate test of endurance, which is Ironman triathlons, which is fascinating. We should definitely dive into that a little bit more. But before that, I want to get your thoughts on uh, different forms of resistance training, kettlebells, Olympic powerlifting, I would say are much more burst you know, I, I think you talked about concentric explosive movements versus more smoother eccentric motions. So that's, you know, curling in and letting the weight drop more, you know, much more fluidly. Curious to get your thoughts on the different forms of explosive training. So I would likely categorize like a power Olympic lifting as much more explosive. Um, how do you do pros and cons between different types of resistance training? I mean, it sounds like in your protocol, you're very big in terms of periodizing and incorporating different different cycles and training blocks of potentially these types of things. Here's to get your thoughts on a couple of these popular modalities. Yeah. Um, so, you know, yeah, you're, you're right. So I do like to periodize these things. I'll put it into blocks, not just for physical stimulation, but for mental stimulation, because I like to challenge myself in different aspects. But I recognize what works for me and what doesn't. So I'd never really go into... Uh, powerlifting, you know, with the, with the squat, the bench and stuff like that because of my restrictions. Number one with my back, number one, uh, number two with my shoulders, especially on a barbell. So I recognize those things. Uh, but I like to do a lot of functional explosive work. And sometimes it's within my bodybuilding structured workout. So as an example, yesterday, um, I was what's called, I, I don't know if you're familiar with EMOM. So it's every minute on the minute. Uh, I'm doing some form of cardio after my set. So I'll have a timer on my phone and uh, it, it, it counts one minute. So during that one minute, I'll get, for instance, like 10 reps out on chins. Then for the rest of the duration of that minute, I may be doing stair climbers. I could be doing squat jumps. I could be doing squat thrusts. I could be doing jumping jacks. You know, there's various movements that I'd be doing just to stay moving in between. Uh, then I'd go on to, say, bent over rows. And then in between that set, I'd be doing kettlebell swings and then uh, move on to another bodybuilding movement. Could be deadlifts, but now I'm flipping a tire in between those sets. So, you know, I like to swap things up. Sometimes I'll separate them. Sometimes I'll combine them. Uh, but I, you know, sometimes I'm wearing a, you know, a heart rate monitor, maybe a my zone, and I'm like, okay, this this workout every week uh, for the next four weeks are all going to be 1,000 calorie burn workouts. However, whatever gets me there as quick as possible, that's what's going to get me there. That's what works for me. That's what stimulates me physically and mentally. Sometimes I overtrain, especially when I travel. Like I was just in uh, India for two weeks on a tour there with Ben Greenfield, then. Uh, I went straight to the Arnold Classic pretty much for the Arnold Classic. It didn't really happen. And then I had to go to Nashville. And I won't take a day off during that time. I just like to do what other people aren't to kind of get results that other people can't, so to speak. So on those times of travel, I'll train every single day. So I have a little bit of normality, but I know that it probably leads to overtraining. However, the mental aspect is more beneficial to me uh, than always the physical aspect, you know, because it's so therapeutic. That's why it's essential that I stay injury free now because of the therapeutic values that I gain from it. Yeah, that's been one thing that's been personally difficult with the shutdown lockdown order that's been happening in California for the last week. 
uh, especially in the Bay Area and now all of California being shut, shut down uh, yesterday is the fact that you know, you're, you're cooped up and it's hard to get in routine of moving around. And um, do you have best practices or suggestions for folks like myself who usually would go to the gym um, and now you got to do body weight exercises or you, maybe you have some kettlebells or some resistance bands or some weights in your apartment or house. Um, sounds like if you're on the, you know, it sounds like you're in a spot where you might have a little bit more access to equipment, but curious to get your sense in how people are adapting, whether you have clients that are in a similar situation to me or a lot of our listeners who are now just stuck in their apartment. What is your best practice there? Yeah, well, I actually put out some videos and ebooks. Like, I, it's just by by coincidence, I finished writing an ebook in January, which was all on at home workouts. It's a twelve week plan at home. So I thought, wow, I really need to bump this out. <laughs> so th- I just uh, published that on my platform uh, now, and I put out videos as well on my YouTube for people to work out at home without any weights whatsoever. Uh, you know, because just because you're training with uh, body weight and without any resistance, you can get creative at home with obviously gallon jugs, uh, canned goods in uh, shopping bags or whatever. However, if you can go out there and order yourself a hexagon bar and some kettlebells, do it. That's what I have in my garage downstairs. I have a tire in there. I have sledgehammers. I have a punch bag. I have a hexagon bar and kettlebells. I've also got like a, a watt bike and treadmill, but I'll go outside for that uh, and I think there's just so much that you can do just with a simple set of dumbbells or barbell or kettlebell and hexagon bar you can pretty much do everything there and as I mentioned use this as an opportunity to get into a routine but make sure that routine is undistracted as it would be as at the gym so you don't have your phone with you when you are when you've got this time try to you know go into a separate room to where your kids are if you can or anybody else just so you are focused take your pre-workout or whatever supplements you would usually take as as normal just to continue to hit the ground running when those gyms do open again because yeah we've been notified that the gyms have closed here but it doesn't bother me in the slightest this is an opportunity to see what you're made of what you can come up with where you can get creative and okay you usually do a bench press with 12 reps well now you're going to do uh sit-ups that are going or, or sorry uh push-ups that's 50 60 70 reps it doesn't matter just forget that your muscles recognize a weight that's on a bar it only understands failure and stress and i think it's very important for people to understand when they're doing bodyweight exercises they still need to reach failure it's the failure is where you will succeed so uh you know every working set should still be the failure 100 100 i mean i was up on my roof yesterday wearing a weight vest had some kettlebells up there and just as you said, I was trying to, I did, you know, 100 pushups, trying to go to failure with that weight vest on and do some goblin squats and all of that. But yeah, I think just get out there and don't just take this as an excuse to watch Netflix and get fat and, and exactly. whatnot. I mean, just take advantage of the time. It's been hard. I think you're absolutely right. Like, it has been harder for me to get that initial pump of like changing the context, being in the gym, fresh environment. It's just weird when you're just in your place and you, you, you go from like one room to the other, you have, you're in your apartment, you're just in that same, same box that you've been in watching your computer. I think that mental game is going to be challenging, but Hey, push through that. 
Exactly. If you look at a lot of the inmates in the majority of the prisons throughout the world, they don't have gyms, but some of them are in <laughs> phenomenal shape because they've got creative whilst they're inside. You know, a friend of mine, Wes Watson, who is down in uh, uh, San Diego there, you know, he was uh, locked up for like 10 years and he's come out now and he's a, he's a big influencer. He's influencing a lot of people. You know, it changed him inside based on the body weight exercises. Is it a guy that's that- on YouTube that's like over the last like six months? I think I've seen some of his content. He's just yeah, like yeah, giving yeah. stories about uh, what's it like in the, in, in the, in the prison. You got he's it. Like yeah, a very huge polarizing, dude. very yeah. polarizing okay. character. Yeah. He's a great guy. I was training with him just like uh, two months ago and you know, this, this is his world, you know? So, <laughs> you know, him being locked up in a home is probably a luxury. Uh, but yeah. there's no reason why we can't look at this as a, a, a positive possibility. A hundred percent. So let's migrate a little bit to nutrition. So I want to dive more into your experimentations, exactly the types of macros, kinds of food sources that you're looking into. So cyclical keto, and you kind of just got kicked off with a carnivore diet. Curious to hear your experience through cyclical keto and stacking that with intermittent fasting. Um, what kind of foods were your staples? Was there an adaptation period where you saw performance decrements? I think that's one of the major concerns, especially for people that are doing power sports. Am I going to lose my gains? Am I going to lose power as I start on a ketogenic diet from a standard Western diet with a lot more carbohydrate intake? What was your experience like? Yeah, with the keto and like I've I've had various uh, DNA tests done, you know, uh, through Aperon, Twenty Three and Me. Uh, Doctor Anthony J did further snips for me as well, and you know I could understand that my body does better with carbohydrates, but I wanted to give it a go anyway, and I felt like I felt better on the keto diet with a cyclical. I did feel better, you know, uh, mentally I felt better, less cravings. Uh, it didn't feel so bloated, I'd say. However, I, it just didn't have a positive effect on me physically. I didn't look as good. I felt I was a little bit watery. I was a, much flatter. Uh, so from a physical standpoint, I didn't really look as good. Uh, from a performance standpoint, my strength was definitely down. Uh, but I felt better, you know, mentally. So it was, it was hard. There was a, there, there, there definitely wasn't a, a combination of both that I could put together. Uh, that would hit my sweet spot uh, with all those fats. And those fats were mostly coming from your, your, you know, your avocado, your egg yolks, your oily fish. I supplement with a lot of EPA and DHA anyway. And, uh, you know, your MCTs, I, I don't really go for that much dairy, so I didn't have the ghee in a coffee or anything like that. Um, and nuts and seeds, those were mostly my, my fat sources. Uh, you know, I was going higher in the fats, probably about 70 70 percent and then you know to, uh actually yeah 65 percent and then uh i had like 35 uh coming from the protein and uh you know i'd only eat two to three meals a day because i'd fast as well with it until probably you know sometime in the afternoon and uh you know i'd break my fast to begin with with a lot of fibrous vegetables just to make sure that i had that volume in there i'd usually start off with raw then i'd go with cooked and then i'd add my protein and then it would be uh my my fats following and uh then what i'd do before bed i would just swap the fats for carbohydrates and that'd be either some oats or some fruits and berries which would you know knock me out of ketosis but by the time i woke up 
the next day, because I'm an active individual, I found myself in ketosis again. And that kind of worked for me. You know, it helped with my sleep patterns as well by having the carbohydrates in the evening to release uh, the, the serotonin. But, uh, you know, that that's one that I experimented both keto and fasting at the same time because they really complemented each other. I wanted to give my digestive system a rest. And obviously, you know, as I mentioned before, I've had stem cells and I know that fasting does help with stem cell proliferation and uh, autophagy, you know, basically that Greek word meaning cleaning house, cleaning your body of any bad DNA. And uh, longevity is one of the things that uh, I am after. And it can be hard to combine that with typical bodybuilding. So I'm you know, trying to do whatever I can to combine them both. So I don't necessarily fast every day now, but I'll do it a, you know, a couple of times a week when, when possible. Got it. So, when, so did you do the cyclical keto, so blocks of keto that at four or six weeks at a time, or was it on a daily basis, you would have your first meal very, very high in fat. And then uh, just, oh, I think we should just be clear to clarify the exact protocol that you experimented with. Yeah, it was eight, eight months, eight months. Okay. I did that. I did that for eight months daily. And, uh, and then, uh, yeah, so my last meal would be like, you know, eight, nine o'clock at night. And then I wouldn't eat again until like two, three o'clock, uh, that following day. So it's usually a 16, eight, somewhere around there. And, uh, like you said, I'd, I'd break my fast usually with, uh, you know, the, the, everything that I mentioned with the fats, but my second or last meal, uh, would be that same combination, but with carbohydrates instead of the fats. I never combined the fats and carbohydrates as much. And uh, so, you know, that that's what would knock me out of ketosis. But due to the fasting and my activity, I'd get into ketosis pretty much straight away. Got it. Got it. So I just want to clarify. So usually, at least in the scientific literature, when people refer to a cyclical ketogenic diet, it's more of a holistic block of just straight keto for four to six weeks and then going back onto a standard western diet so again it's just like what are the times lengths of your cycles in at least the scientific literature cyclical ketogenic diets refers to more like four eight week blocks of keto straight through and then carbohydrate for another four six blocks but i think in terms of what your protocol it makes sense that you're I guess, cyclically going to keto ketosis and then maybe dipping out right before bed, but you're maintaining some level of ketosis through that eight-month period block. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I kind of, uh, you know, I, I learned this from uh, Ben Greenfield. Yep. And when I started applying it myself, it, 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 it worked well for me and it made sense. So that, that's why I applied it. And I guess, you know, I can't think of any other terminology to call it other than a cyclical, but maybe it's not the scientifically or politi politically correct terminology. <laughs> uh, but, you know, that was the approach that I was following. Yeah, very cool. And then what kicked you off to explore the carnivore diet? Um, we've had a lot of the carnivore influencers, if you will, on the program. I've done a couple blocks of carnivore myself. Um, more and more people have been trying it. Curious to get your initial thoughts, you know, seven, eight days in. 
Yeah, well, a few of my friends have uh, done it before and they enjoyed it. They liked it. They said they didn't have any cravings on it. And uh, some of them lost a lot of weight. Um, you know, I know that Joe Rogan obviously did it as of recent as well. So I thought, you know what, I, you know, this is something. And, and so a lot of my clients were asking about it. And, I, you know, I have this terminology that I use, knowledge without mileage is bullshit. So I thought, well, I can't give out the knowledge if I don't put in the mileage. So I'm just going to experiment for the next four weeks uh, so I can better relate to my, the, the, to my clients that are asking me about this. Uh, so that's why I pretty much do a lot of these things. So, uh, you know, and you know what? Uh, I'm only like six days in, but I feel good. I don't have any cravings. Um, you know, I'm not having any sauces or anything like that on my food. I'm basically having a little bit of real salt and Redmond real salt. And that's about it. And I, and I feel good that my strength hasn't declined yet. My weight did drop a lot initially, but I think a lot of that would be fluid because I was getting a little, uh, a couple of cramps there in my hamstrings and my abs. So I think, you know, I've probably lost a lot of uh, fluid there. So that's why I've really increased a lot of my electrolytes, uh, remineralizing my water and uh, putting a lot of salt on my foods. But so far, so good. My digestive system feels fine. I've been, I was told that I'd have diarrhea in the first week, but I haven't encountered that. I've got pretty much a bulletproof stomach anyway. I've, uh, I'm pretty good there, so maybe that's one of the reasons why. But so far, not much to report other than I feel good. Yeah, good to hear. I think I would say I had a fairly similar experience as you on my couple of carnivore uh, eating blocks. Maybe a little bit more watery in the in the output, but one of the things I noticed a lot was that I had a lot less volume of poop i don't know i mean it's, we're talking about it so might as well just get up get get full gnarly in there it, it, that's one of the surprising things from <laughs> that i think is a little bit less obvious on the carnivore diet i don't know if you have that similar experience yeah uh, funnily i hadn't thought about it until you brought it up but <laughs> come to think of it you are absolutely correct and i think because there's just a lot more density and especially if you're an active in individual like yourself and myself then a lot of that protein amino acids are going to be utilized by the muscles uh so you know you're not left with so much like fiber or carbohydrates further from what you're consuming and you know additional fats yeah, so what are you eating? Just a bunch of ribeye steaks or what are you, what are you cooking up for yourself? I pretty much nose to tail. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't mind organ meats. I eat organ meats anyway. So, you know, liver, kidneys, uh, heart, like some heart. Uh, but, you know, I do, I, I'm having salmon as well because, you know, eating a lot of red meat can get old soon. But lamb, I had ribs last night, uh, steak for breakfast with eggs. Um, so yeah, pretty much the standard protocol of the carnival, you know, yeah, nose to tail and you know, I'll good. have some bone, bone broth, uh, just to make sure that I balance out the glycine and, uh, methionine balance, you know? Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. I think that's one of the things that it, I think I'm glad you mentioned the glycine methionine balance. I think that's, uh, something that's interesting and in, in terms of the critiques with heavy meat based diets where, the argument there is that methionine in of itself might be correlated with earlier all-cause mortality, but that might be mitigated with glycine intake. And I think, again, a lot of the studies have been done only on animal models. I would say that nutrition is relatively nascent still, even though that's humans just eat all the time. 
Um, always like a little fun, interesting debates there. But I think in terms of getting glycine from either supplements or collagen or bone broth seems like a very sensible thing to do. Uh, and, you know, I mean, but there's very much a lot of carnivores who don't do any of that either and seem to be doing fine. So, uh, a lot of N equals ones going out, out, out there right now. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, you know, as a bodybuilder, it is difficult, isn't it? You know, because we're, we're, we want to signal mTOR to build muscle, but at the same time, we don't want to overly signal that mTOR pathway because it could lead uh, to a, a, an earlier death. So whatever we can do to balance that out with our AMPK through the fasting and kind of balancing that, like that methionine uh, and glycine balance. And I, yeah, you can supplement with it, but I just prefer to go the traditional ancestral route of just going nose to tail. Like I remember my mother uh, telling me not so long ago, oh yeah, in cooking class in school, we'd be like dressing up a kidney or you know, working with liver and stuff like that. Very different to today. And I take advantage of it because it's cheaper as well, because I guess a lot of people today don't want to eat it. So, you know, if you think about all the the nutrient-dense quality that you can get out of organ meat, uh, much better than uh, just, you know, uh, uh, lean meats, then it, it just makes complete sense. You know, you just need to dress it up a little bit with some salt. And, you know, if you want to bastardize the carnival, I guess you can. But, you know, I'm trying to keep it strict. And I actually quite enjoy eating the lean meats, especially if you combine it with a bit of steak, for instance. You don't have to have all liver on your plate. You could just combine a little bit. So I'm probably, I, I know there's probably some listeners now uh, throwing up in their mouths <laughs> because they can't, you know, face the idea of having, um, you know, organ meats, but when you look at the nutritional value, it, it justifies it. Yeah, and I think you also look at how wolves and other meat eaters and and, and <clears throat> just just look at our animal brethren. They go for the organ meats first and leave the muscle tissue for the the carrion. So there is potentially some rhyme to that reason. I think. The argument from the nutritional density is there and i think just observationally uh, within the animal kingdom that's an interesting data point to consider it is just interesting from us being modern humans where like that's something interesting to me like why has the palate become has framed organ meats as revolting i think i've just like learned to appreciate it it's yeah it's just yummy to me now I'm just curious, like, that is definitely not the case for most people I talk to. Um, most people just legitimately think it tastes bad. And I'm just wondering what that disconnect is. Is it that our taste buds have become so morphed with processed foods that we have just a warped sense of what tastes good? Or is it just, okay, take some adaptation, just stick through it uh, a few times and you'll come to appreciate that flavor. I don't know what it is. Yeah, I'd say it's a bit of both, isn't it? Because if you have that warped sense, especially when you consider what that organ is, then people are going to, you know, have that expectation of that flavor. And when they get that flavor, they're going to uh, compound that with other thoughts. And then, you know, when you're eating this food, it's going to take a while for your body, uh, your taste buds to possibly adapt to it. But once you do, it's not so bad. You know, maybe you need to get creative with your cooking to begin with, some marinades just to go through that adaptation phase and, uh, you know, baby steps. Um, 
I, I, yeah, I'd say it's probably a bit of both. Like, obviously, coming from Wales, we grew up eating uh, black pudding. Uh, I don't know if you know what black pudding is. Some countries call it blood pudding. It was kind of dried blood and gristle, and that's, you know, everybody in Wales has uh, the black pudding. We love it. But I know when I have some friends from America come over and, you know, they try it, they do not like it. Uh, a lot of them. A lot of them don't like it at all. Uh, so you know, I feel like it, we just, just didn't what... tell them what it was. They'd probably like it. Like exactly I, I, with the English exactly. breakfast, there's some black pudding on on that plate. It's pretty good, and then then you tell people what it is, and it's like oh, they're like oh my god, this is horrifying. But yeah, if you don't tell yeah. them, it's like oh, it's just like a pretty savory, meaty little you know nice little texture. Yeah, I think that's that's the key. Don't tell them what it is. You know, <laughs> just say it goes with the Yorkshire pudding. It's part of that family. Hundred percent. So I'm curious to hear your trajectory into endurance sport. I mean, going from bodybuilding to long distance Ironman triathlons, not obvious. What got you down that journey? Uh, because like I've always done cardio every day, twice a day. You know, ever since like motocross is again, it's just therapeutic to me, and I think the most important muscle that you have in your body is your heart. It's not your delts or your biceps is going to get you to a hundred years old or good health. It's going to be your heart health. So, uh, you know, I've always enjoyed doing cardio and I really found that it helped me in my bodybuilding career because, um, you know, with recovery, I found that through movement, through low level activities, uh, that it would obviously help promote nutrient rich blood around the body to allow it to recover the localized areas that I just destroyed in a gym. So I found if I didn't do cardio every day that I could only train like four days a week in a gym. Uh, but if I did cardio every day, I could train like at least five days in the gym. And uh, so I've always done that. And I'll always get a lot of backlash from my peers or sometimes even get questioned by my clients. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to go and get ready for something that's extreme. That'll be an Ironman triathlon. And I'll give my six months to prepare for it. And I'll have it documented every day. And I'll write a book about it as well. So, you know, I went through the regular tests, the Dexter scan. Uh, various tests at the university here in Boise, the FTP, lactate threshold, et cetera, uh, to show that you could actually improve your fitness whilst training as a bodybuilder and uh, improve uh, uh, and, and be able to compete in an Ironman triathlon. And uh, which I did. I didn't lose any muscle. I actually put on uh, some muscle during that process. Uh, I didn't eat and train or supplement like a typical uh, triathlete by any means. But I wanted to document it. I didn't think that I was going to excel in it by any means. But I want to show people that you can participate. You can do both. It doesn't have to be something extreme as this. But you should be doing some form of cardio every day. Bodybuilders shouldn't be uh, set up as like ornaments and uh, trying to refrain from doing any activity. So that was the reasoning behind it. And, you know, I did some other endurance sports or functional sports like the Spartan and uh, ultra marathon, uh, just to show, show people that you can do it and that endurance athletes can benefit from strength training and vice versa as well. So since I, I did that, you know, a lot of people have become what's called hybrid athletes as well. And when they come up to me at an expo or tell me that they've competed in an Ironman triathlon and show me their medal, you know, it's uh, very rewarding. You know, I, I love seeing that people that once were just set and confined to the treadmill or the Stairmaster in the gym are actually going outdoors and hitting the trails and hitting the tracks and 
participating in their first 5K or half marathon. Yeah, I think that's really cool. I think that notion of cross-training makes, a, I guess, maybe like in counterintuitive sense. It's like, yeah, just do as many varied things as just give hormetic stress across your system. But I think the physiologic argument that you're just letting the blood pump, clear lactic acid, clear lactate, get things flowing again, seems to be just smart from a recovery perspective. I mean, just get a little bit of that blood flowing in a way that isn't like five seconds of super max lifting and then you rest for five minutes and then do that again. Just get 30 minutes of steady 130, 140, 150 BPM and just get a little bit of clearance and flow in your overall physiology. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I'm curious to hear all about your biohack. So it sounds like you've done a lot of experimentation, both with continuous glucose monitoring and, and tracking your bloods to stem cells. Sounds like you're pretty experimental. Obviously, we share a mutual friend, Ben Greenfield. Um, what are interesting? What, what do you think fits your bar of evidence? And then on the converse side, what do you think was the most uh, foolish thing or most ridiculous thing that you think was a waste of time, waste of money completely, but at least is a funny story. I don't think I've actually, luckily, I don't think I've gone into anything as yet uh, that I'd say is a waste of money or a waste of my time. I, maybe I've been a little bit reserved into going into anything extreme like fecal matter transplants or anything <laughs> like that. Uh, you know, but definitely what has helped for me, which if you want to call it a biohack, uh, is hot and cold thermogenesis. I have an infrared sauna here at home and I have an ice bath and uh, I try to do the sauna all the time and uh, the ice bath or cold shower like every day as well. And that has been phenomenal for me, not just from a physical standpoint, you know, helping with, uh, you know, inflammation, et cetera. It's been great for my skin and really good for my emotional stability you know, because that cold, obviously, especially on your vagal nerve, you know, I always try to submerge my thyroid when I'm in the ice bath as, uh, you know, toning that vagal nerve, that fight or flight response has just provided so much emotional stability. It's great. And I have an infrared panel that's helped with my sleep cycle in the evening. Uh, but it, it's weird that, you know, obviously in the winter here in Boise, it's dark in the morning. But if I blast myself, with the, the infrared light first thing in the morning upon waking, I find that I'm able to have a better night's sleep in the evening because it's set in my circadian rhythm early in the morning uh, as it should because we can't always get outside, especially at this time of day. So uh, that, that biohack has worked well. And again, it's whether you want to class these as biohacks because uh, our mutual friend Ben Greenfield did uh, tell me about a gravity blanket that he uses, which is like a weighted blanket. Uh, so there's a few things that I do before bed. Obviously, I wear like the blue light blocking glasses for a couple of hours because sleep is my biggest issue. It always has been. Well, not always has been, but it has been for uh, for many years. Uh, so, you know, the blue light blocking glasses uh, before bed, I'll make sure that I wear, you know, long sleeve top, long sleeve, uh, long pants because of the photosynthesis uh, through the skin as well. And then, uh, you know, jump in the bed with that weighted blanket, which is earthed as well, by the way. I have an earthing bed sheet. So grounding is a big part of, uh, of that sleep hack uh, cycle, which really helps. And obviously, I quantify that sleep. And so I can actually see in real time if something is working, something isn't. I find that CBD in a cyclical approach, again, works well for me. If I take it every day, it doesn't. 
so I'll take like a, a at least 100 milligrams of CBD before bed uh, to, to help with that. So uh, those are just a few of the things. I've got other things around the house, you know, like a PMF mat and uh, stuff like that uh, that, I, that I utilize. I don't get them all out all the time, but they're there when, when needed. Yeah. I think those are, you know, especially the circadian rhythm and in a time where people might be more anxious than normal, um, getting that sleep, I think if you don't have access to a sauna or an ice bath, which I, you know, come to think of, I don't do that. I mean, I, I usually do that in my gym, which is now shut down. But what can you do to mimic that? Well, maybe, you know, making sure you get some sunlight. If you're in a part of the country or the world that has some sun in the morning, make sure you get some of that. If we're all just indoors, you're just not going to, we're extra prone to not getting actual circadian rhythm set up. So, you, I think that's actually absolutely spot on um, with things like the infrared light, the blue light blocking glasses in the evenings, obviously reducing electronic use in the evenings. But if that is, that's already been pretty bad with a normal s- schedule, but if we're all cooped up in a box for the coming weeks and months, potentially being really thoughtful of trying to set a circadian rhythm seems to be especially important uh, now. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it's probably one of the most overlooked uh, principles in our life, especially as we become busier, you know, we look at the entrepreneurship space of burning a candle at both ends. But as I always tell my clients, you know, if you don't recover, you don't perform. If your recovery is down, say, 3%, your performance could be down 13% or more. And sleep is a huge part of that recovery. And, uh, you know, I used to have very little sleep. I was exposed to mold toxicity. So I did whatever I can to kind of biohack my sleep as well and, you know, uh, bind uh, toxins and sweat them out and all that sort of stuff. Uh, So sleep is a very, very important part of my uh, personal culture now. You know, I just did a podcast that was released, I think it was yesterday with Ben Greenfield. And we did a tour of seminars in, um, in India and a huge part of our talk was on sleep because it's just so important. There's massive importance behind it that uh, people are overlooking. They may say as well that they're sleeping six, seven, eight hours, but when they look at the quality of their sleep, then you know maybe it wasn't efficient. So there's a, there's a lot can be said for uh, getting a good night's sleep. Obviously, a good mattress because we spend so much of our life there. Uh, a good pillow, making sure that the room's darked out, it's uh, cool at the right temperature, and uh, you know, the, the, and make it sure that the biggest thing is that everybody's on their phone or computer just before bed, and they sleep with the phone on next to their uh, ne- next to their head on a on a bedside table, and that's that's the biggest thing. It's like that that doesn't even require a biohack; it just needs uh, uh, discipline. That actually is like a nice tour of what I, I I imagine you would agree with me, like the three core pillars here, right? We talked about diet, we talked about exercise or lack of exercise. And of course, sleep is the third pillar. And these are things that every human ha- is has to do, right? We all have to sleep. We all have to eat something. Even if you're eating unhealthy, that's a choice of eating something unhealthy and exercise. Even if you're not exercising, you're choosing a sedentary exercise, essentially. So if you can get those three basics set up, I think that puts all of us in a, in a much better spot. Yeah, for sure. Of course, you know, if you look back to our ancestors and look at the blue zones, you know, they all participate in some form of low level activity, or they had to go out and hunt and gather, and uh, they were eating natural at the same time, and they would sleep, you know, after that campfire had gone out, 
They would go to sleep at a normal time, not three o'clock in the morning or two o'clock in the morning, watching Netflix, and they'd get up at sunrise. You know, that's when our cortisol level naturally spikes in the morning. However, it does sedate in the evening. However, if we're exposing ourselves to LED screens or stimulating the brain, watching TV or in conversation at a restaurant, uh, then obviously that's not going to be working well for our recovery and our health. Yeah, perfect. I think this is like a really helpful, nice encapsulation of some of the core principles that either we should be reminded about or recapitulated and refocus on the basics, or for folks that haven't heard of some of these things, maybe something to explore and experiment with. So Chris, how do people stay in touch? How do people follow? Uh, what are you most excited about in 2020? In 2020, wow, that's a question that you uh, that you caught me with. I'd say the most thing. Well, after uh, we've uh, we're out of self quarantine, uh, you know, I'd, I'd like to see how we have now all kind of uh, banded together. We've all come together. You know, one thing that my fiance mentioned the other day that she noticed uh, outside is that people are smiling at each other more now, like at the park, walking yeah. their dogs. You know, and I think there's some sort of camaraderie that will come out of this. That's what I'm excited about. Uh, but if people want to find me, they can find me on my Instagram. That's Chris, K-R-I-S, Gethin, G-E-T-H-I-N, or at my website, uh, which is HealthKick. That is spelled H-E-A-L-T-H-K-I-K.com. Awesome. Thanks so much, Chris. Be safe, be healthy, it. and we'll talk again soon. Thank you very much, sir. Have a good day. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the HVMN Podcast. If you're interested to learn more about HVMN and our offerings, visit hvmn.com slash pod. Please remember to subscribe. And if you're watching this on YouTube, please give this video a like. And remember to hit that bell to get notified whenever we post. We also have a dedicated Discord server, which you can join by first taking a short survey, and then I'll personally send you an invite to join the community there. The link to that survey will be in the description, along with any other relevant links. And we'll see you all next week.